This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. When I first moved to Manhattan, I lived in a four-story walk-up railroad flat in an old tenement building on 16th Street. The type of apartment I lived in was called a railroad flat because like a train, you had to walk through one room to get to another, which made having a bedroom in the back of the building rather difficult to navigate, especially since I shared the apartment with a sexually active on-again, off-again couple. I had to walk through their bedroom in order to go into or get out of mine, and I never knew what to expect on the journey. We lived like this until they broke up, and by then, mercifully, I had enough money to pay the rent by myself. This meant that I could watch whatever I wanted on television whenever I wanted to, and I could listen to my music, the Cocteau Twins and this Mortal Coil and Modern English, as loud as I damn well pleased. I also attempted to decorate my apartment in a way that was more adult-like. And as soon as I saved enough money, I replaced the dingy milk crates holding my books with a real bookcase and to buy a bed frame instead of sleeping on a mattress on the floor. Given my profound lack of funds and my limited expertise in all things DIY, I found myself investigating all sorts of design alternatives in an effort to invent, for the very first time, my very own version of a home sweet home. I used contact paper to wallpaper the kitchen. I used double-sided tape to stick on faux tin tile backsplash behind the sink and I created custom floor-to-ceiling bookshelves with bricks bought from a local lumber store that I lugged up the four flights and stacked in an alcove by the window. I also started to entertain. I began by inviting family and friends and slowly expanded to colleagues and neighbors. I also experimented with cooking and enjoyed presenting my handmade abstractions rather than the replated Chinese takeout I had previously been serving. About a year into my foray as New York City designer come hostess, I was invited to dinner by one of my best clients, a woman named Karen. She was a powerful and beautiful media executive, and I was excited to be welcomed into her very exclusive clique. I bought myself a brand-new bright pink sweater from Benetton and brought along the best bottle of wine I could afford. When my client's husband opened the door to their downtown loft, I felt as if I had momentarily left the planet. The lights glistened like little stars, and the clink-clink of the crystal glasses made it seem as if the stars were blinking. I looked all around and saw tall, skinny women in sleeveless black dresses and sinuous updos and felt short and lumpy in comparison. And the food it was a table a mile wide, piled high with glasses and bowls and platters of the most glamorous hors d'oeuvres I had ever seen. There were thick pâtés, cocktails, the color of my sweater, and shrimps the size of lobsters. I didn't know how to enter into this foreign world and stood paralyzed next to the punch. Seeing my dismay, my client came over, wrapped her arm around my shoulders, and introduced me to an editor friend of hers. 
Her grace eased my insecurity, and I tried to avoid embarrassing her with my awkwardness and naivete. After that night, I rethought my own hostessing efforts and vowed that from then on I would entertain with a bit more elegance and savoir faire. And for the most part, I have. I still entertain often, but I have long since moved out of the fourth floor walk-up. Now guests walk downstairs into my living room as I try to outdo myself by bestowing the very best as often as I can. Several weeks ago, I had a party for some friends and spent the afternoon happily arranging and preparing and organizing. About an hour before the soiree, I began to worry that I didn't have enough food. The presentation didn't look perfect, and I decided that I didn't have the right amount of cheese. With an hour to go before the festivities were scheduled to start, I calculated how much time I needed to run to the market, buy more cheese, and return home with time to finish getting ready. I determined that if I ran, I could just about do it. It was nearly dark as I rushed out, and I raced to the store, barely looking at what to buy. I loaded up my cart and chose the shortest line. I fretfully rocked back and forth, waiting my turn. The woman ahead of me seemed to be on her way out, but when she gave the cashier her credit card, it didn't go through. She asked the cashier to try again, and again, it didn't work. Anxious and impatient, I imagined myself as a modern-day George Costanza and pushing her out of the way while yelling, fire. I loudly sighed and did my inner eye roll. The woman tried another card, but it, too, wouldn't go through. I glanced at my watch. The cashier asked her if she wanted to pay with cash, and she examined her wallet. She shook her head no. She didn't have enough money. She apologized and walked out. Finally, at long last, my turn. As I put the copious packages of cheese on my belt, I asked the cashier what the woman had been trying to buy. She pointed at a bag of potatoes at the end of the counter. The woman had been trying to buy a bag of potatoes. Here I was, anxiously and obnoxiously, trying to prove who knows what to everyone around me by purchasing ludicrous amounts of cheese and the woman in front of me didn't have enough money to buy a three-pound bag of potatoes. I stood red-faced as I paid for my purchases, and when I was finished, I hurried outside to try and find her. But she was gone. It was now completely dark out, and I walked back home slowly. I carried the cheese close to my chest, and my eyes burned in the bitter wind. When I got home, I put the cheese on a pretty platter and felt the smallness of my spirit as I waited for my guests to arrive. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the legendary designer, Vaughn Oliver. Before we get started with our interview, please let me tell you a bit more about him. It is not possible to talk about graphic design of the last 25 years without acknowledging the contribution of Vaughn Oliver. Without a doubt, he is one of the most important graphic designers of our time, and his influence can be seen far and wide. Vaughn Oliver set up the design company 23 Envelope in the early 1980s and rechristened the company V23 in 1988. Working with the label for AD, Vaughn deeply influenced the discipline of record sleeve design, working with musicians such as Ultra Vivid Scene, Frank Black, The Pixies, Cocteau Twins, This Mortal Coil, Robert Fripp, and many, many others. 
His mythical work is the closest pop music and art have ever been. His 2001 monograph, Visceral Pleasures, written by Rick Pointer, explores the different phases of Oliver's career and shows that at their most expressive and inventive, Oliver's graphic images embody his intense responses as listener as it plunges the viewer into a world of visceral sensation and pleasure. Vaughn now has his offices in Wandsworth, South England, where he is talking with me today. Welcome, Vaughn. Thank you, Debbie. Oh, my God. Pleasure. So amazing. You sound like a music fan. <laughs> I am just that's so where, That's where your initial story started, wasn't it? Oh, the well, I'm a little sad one today. I didn't want that story to finish. It's all downhill from now on. Eh? <laughs> hardly, hardly. I actually have a very funny little anecdote to start off our interview. Mm-hmm. Um, my researcher, Jen Simon, found the most magnificent little bit of information about you on the Internet that I thought I'd share with you that I highly doubt you've seen. I don't know if you're aware of this, but in the United States, we have a an Internet site called Craigslist where people can post uh, jobs, for people looking for jobs or post things that they want to sell or right. want to get hooked up and so forth. You really can go on Craigslist to get just about anything. So you found this ad on Craigslist, and I want to share this with you. Looking for an artist to design some prints and album cover work. Needs to be familiar with Vaughn Oliver 4AD designs and other like-minded work. If not familiar with reference, do not respond to post, only looking to work with someone who is familiar with and inspired by Vaughn Oliver. That's been my problem for so many years. Um, Other people get asked to do a Vaughn Oliver. Yes, how do you feel about about your 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 reputation and your fame and where you stand in the graphic design oeuvre, so to speak? How do I feel about it? Yes, um, how do you feel about it? I think, um, I suppose it makes me feel uncomfortable. Really. Why is that? It's, um, I'm doing the work because I, I'm inspired by the music and um, that's as far as I saw the work going, really. Um, more questions. Oh, okay, more questions. Well, I want to ask you a question. You know, I, I did. we did an interview uh, for my book, which came out last year, um, and there was one question in, in looking through all of my notes that of, of our interview that I didn't ask you that I often ask designers that come on the show, and I realized that I needed to know this information about you, and I hadn't asked. And so it's one of my favorite questions. It's actually a question that I stole from Milton Glaser. He asks this question quite a lot. And the question is this. What was your first memory of ever being creative? Mm. You're going to have to to, I'm going to go a long way back. I thought thought your book was very good, by the way, very revealing, very... Um, the designers in there gave you a very personal response to the questions and initially I was dubious about taking part in something where there were no illustrations of the work. Really? It was basically, yeah, and I, it's, I, I thought, I think it's a kind of an, it's an ambush, ambitious book in that sense. I'm always a lot more comfortable talking about the work if it's there to speak for itself. Mm-hmm. And um, was it he, was it Milton that gave the answer about the um, somebody offering him a, a bag with a bird in it. Yes. And, and there was a drawing on the bag. Yes, that was, that he was, was a little boy. Was, that was his first memory of being creative. That was, that was beautiful. <clears throat> I, can't, I can't recall anything 
as, as, as beautiful or as um, inspirational as that as, as an early memory. Um, I didn't really come from a very creative family. Um, I'm from a very kind of working class family and coming at, grew up in a coal mining area. Mum was a housewife and dad worked for the coal board for all of his life. Um, a first creative memory. I, I can remember seeing, having said that, I, I do remember when the parents were out of the house um, finding one of Mum's drawing books. She had done some sketches of female nudes. Really? And I remember, I think that's probably more connected with my first, my initial erotic charges, I think. Not surprising that your creativity is often erotically charged. I'm sorry. I said it's not surprising then that your creativity is often erotically charged. Relating. So, so, um, so you saw, you saw. I don't remember being particularly creative, mm-hmm, you know, no. as, as a kid or having creative urges. So when did you decide that you wanted to be a graphic designer? Graphic designer probably came um, as, as a teenager. I think in terms of my um, art education at, at, at secondary school, is that, is that your high school? Yes. Around about kind of 14 or 15, that's when I was starting to get into Dali. Mm-hmm. Dali, to me, reading his autobiography, um, it was the confessions of a rock star. Mm-hmm. I, I think it combined my two passions for, for art and, and music, the idea of making record sleeves. But I was kind of into Dali at the time, at the same time I was into very early Roxy music. Um, and I, I remember I was, I was subscribing to an arts magazine called Studio International when I was about 16 and reading about Chris Burden, the um, performance artist, nailing himself to the Volkswagen Beetle mm-hmm. and um, masturbating under the floorboards in a, in a performance piece, and which totally blew my mind, you know, that, that this could be termed art. It, it opened my mind, I suppose. So there was kind of fine art influences then as a, as a teenager, as well as the rock music influences. And I, um, I thought the idea of making record slaves would be quite a good living. Mm-hmm. So the way into that, I, 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 I presumed, was to go to art school. And I don't think I had, I suppose I had a commercial, um, it was a commercial aspect to choosing graphic design as opposed to fine art. I, I, I presumed that fine artists didn't get jobs at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And, and coming from a working class background, I wanted a job. How did you do in school? I know that um, I've, I've read about you, and we talked a little bit in our, our previous interview, that when you started working, you um, were very skeptical of doing things the way things had previously been done before, and you knew that when you were told by a creative director to do something a certain way because it looked, so to speak, more like a record cover, that that's exactly what you didn't want to do. Mm. So, so what, what was your experience like in school? Um, throughout, throughout, um, throughout art school, yes. um, I, was, I was doing a graphic design course. I had a very, very um, influential and inspirational um, tutor, which I still see today, Terry Dowling. And um, I, I suppose we were offered various modules in typography and packaging, um, but I always chose the illustration one because... Um, 
knew I wanted a job at the end of the day. I knew, wanted a, I, knew I needed commissions at the end of the day to survive. But I thought that illustration would offer me a, a chance for personal expression as well. And I didn't see graphic design offering me that at that stage. Because we're going back to 1976. And this is before the boom of design awareness in the 80s. Right. The now, you were brought. still in your teens at this point, right? Yeah. Yes. So uh, it's just kind of, yeah, late teens. Um, no, I, well, I always the first chose the that, module. Sorry. The, the, first, the, first, the very first employee, full-time employee for, that, that 4AD brought on. Is that correct? Yes, it was. And, and you've worked with this record label now for, since 1983. You started there when you were 23 years old. Um, big yeah, well, I got kind of started doing freelance for them back in, in, in 1980. Wow, so, so the, 20 the, years old. How did, how did you find, did you just go knocking on their door and say, you do great, great music and I want to work for you? Um, no, it was even, it was even kind of more, um, accidental than that. It was, I was, I was working in a packaging design studio, um. A conventional packaging design studio? Conventional packaging design Doing studio. Doing deodorant Just, just to go back wash. to the art school thing, what I was going to point out was that I focused on illustration all the way through the three years. Okay. And I, I avoided typography because it just seemed like another language to me. Too many typefaces, all different names, a whole new measuring system. How am I ever going to get my head around that? How do you choose the right one? So I avoided typography, not that it was dryly taught, but I think I was kind of ignorant of its possibilities, if you like. Mm-hmm. So I came to London determined to get work in illustration, um, but I wasn't really good. <laughs> so <laughs> I had to get a day job, and rather than work in a bar, I said, well, I said, well, I work in a design studio, so I got to work. I was working in a packaging design studio, and um, somebody called Michael Peters. Yes, I'm very familiar with Michael Peters. Yeah, it was kind of it was a big name, and he was quite um, innovative in, at, at the time. And I was working on a lot of um, drinks labels. And I was working on these drinks labels and looking closely at the, being obliged to work with typography, you know, as part of the job, um, that I became inspired by looking closely at these, these, these fat fonts, working with these skinny fonts, and, uh, with extremes and with, um, and I thought, yes, I can take this and I can subvert this in, in the graphic, in, the, in, in record sleeves, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, I had meanwhile <coughs> been introduced to Ivo that had started 4AD. 4AD started at the same time as like 1980, just after punk. And there was a lot of independent record companies like Factory and Mute Records and Rough Trade that started around that period um, by people that were putting out music that they that had no necessary commercial aspirations. Uh, Ivo in particular was somebody um, that cared about the way that the record was going to be packaged. Um, and I used to just bump into him at gigs at clubs watching the same bands. And he was putting out music that I empathized with, or basically that I would buy. So um, a relationship was struck up. So he hired you to do uh-huh. record sleeves without yeah, having so initially, initially for, for the first, um, I think for the first two years. Um, I was working on a freelance basis while I was working at Michael's. Um, and um, he was just operating out of a room above the 
Beggar's Banquet record shop in Earl's Court at the time. Right. And when, uh, when we moved offices and there was kind of there was kind of room to move in, I was his first employee. So I was expected to do. Because I was bumping into him in clubs. Um, uh, I think he had a different impression of me. He thought I might be able to do all the record selling and the promoting and the plugging um, simply because of the kind of conversation that I might have in a club at that time of night or day. Do you know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. So when he hired you and found out that you only wanted to do graphic design, <laughs> yes. what was his reaction? Um, he was accommodating. <laughs> I think he was, he was surprised how long the job took. Um and um, so was I, because I'd never done any artwork before. So I was kind of learning on the job, if you like. Yes, and, and that and did bother him, and he just saw your potential and knew that he had made the right decision. Was there ever a moment where he doubted your abilities? Um, that's a, be- a question best put to him, really. <laughs> um, I, I think what he was very good at was kind of, he might not have agreed with some of the um, directions I was taking in a design, but he would still come to me, six months later, and say, yeah, I can see now why you've done that. He allowed me to, whatever you call it, push the envelope, blur yeah. boundaries. And, well, it's um, interesting because when I was reading um, your monograph, the one, uh, Visceral Pleasures, uh, written by Rick Pointer, I was very struck by him saying in the book that um, you had done your best work um, according to the folks that you were working for when no one bothered you and left you alone to your own devices. That's and, right. And I thought that was extremely interesting that you didn't have uh, as much input uh, that designers are often confronted with having by their clients. It has been a very, very fortunate working situation. You know, um, it was an opportunity that fell in my lap and um, it, it was an opportunity to put the sleeves on my own record collection. Right. It was stuff I wanted to buy. So I was naturally inspired, and I was working with bands. Um, because of the independent ethic, um, the bands were kind of had creative control. None of the bands were obliged to work with me just because I was in the building. Right. Um, they, some bands chose to work with other designers. Um, so nobody's obliged to work with me. And I worked in close collaboration with all of the bands, and, and, and nobody, again, was kind of obliged to accept my finished, finished piece. Um, I was always led by, um, I was led by their music, just trying to reflect their music. Um, I would work with the lyrics, and I would work in conversation with the bands. So it was never a case of kind of doing something over here and then showing it to the band as a finished piece and then them having to accept it. I mean, there were a number of occasions when the band would say, fantastic sleeve one, it's got nothing to do with our music, sling it, start again. Now, would you, and you, would you or would you fight? Yeah, no, I'd start again. I'd start again. I'd obviously just picked up on part, um, I thought probably I'd just picked up on one aspect of, the, of their music. But I really, for me, it was, and it still is, about pleasing the band having total respect for what they've done. And it's not about kind of reaching a market or an audience. It's, it's about trying to kind of reflect the ideas, the atmosphere, the tone of the music. I sound like an obsessive, don't I? 
Um, well, in the best possible way. Mm. You work. You have worked with some of the most creative, inventive, ingenious musicians of our time. The Pixies, the Cocteau Twins, This Mortal Coil, Robert Fripp. Were these artists, and as you have worked with them, you're, you just finished doing work with uh, Kim Deal and the Breeders. Mm. Did they did they did they insist upon a certain collaborative spirit, or were you really just working on your own inspiration from the music? Um, you know, I, I, I suppose I'd probably say every band is different. Um, one of the best working relationships was with the Pixies. Um, one, you know, their, 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 their work's just full of imagery, so it's a great place to start. So Charles Thompson would send me um, the demos and the lyrics. We'd talk about ideas in the music, um, and then I would choose a photographer. And a lot of the Pixies' works uh, I, I did with Simon Labalestia. His personal work had a similar kind of mood and tone, if you like, to the Pixies. Mm-hmm. In, in their music, he could have been a fifth pixie, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, it didn't really take it didn't really take much art direction from me, and that's kind of the, I generally work with photographers. I give them a lot of space. Yes. I think half half the job is done if you choose the right photographer, um, and and then I'll kind of work with that photographer, identify aspects of work that I like that I think fits with the music, and. Um, a lot of the photographers that I've worked with have one foot in the art camp, have one foot in the commercial camp, and they have a lot of kind of personal work. And where are you going in your personal work? Where would you like to go next with it? Can you see it relating to this music? So I don't, I'm not kind of an art director that stands over the top of a photographer and um, looks over his shoulder and, and, and directs him, but has the confidence in the first instance to go with that photographer's own aesthetic. Right. And and with the Pixies, Simon and the Pixies were a perfect match. Um, it was it was great dialogue, and I think that's I think that's some of our best work. I really enjoy the dark humour you know, that that's in that that's in that work. Um, another band might give me a bunch of images that I'm a, you know that I need to use, and um, that's a whole different ball game. But I'm prepared to work in both different ways, really. Vaughn, we have a caller on the line. We have Isabel from New York. Isabel, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Vaughn. Hello there. I, I have actually two questions. I'd like to know if you think record covers will go away completely now that more and more music is being sold on iTunes and people are buying less actual CDs. And do you have a like a ideal artist or group that you would love to work with or work for? Like a wish list. Are you in the band? No, <laughs> afraid not. Um, do I have an ideal artist? Well, I've just been describing a situation where um, I'm sorry I didn't get all of your first question, but I'm in a, I've been in a situation for 25 years, said the old man, where I'm, I'm, I'm designing for my own record collection. It has been a ideal situation to design for the Pixies and the Cocteau Twins for Mountain Goats more recently. Um, so, um, and I'm always ready to take stuff on board from outside, but it's not something that I naturally seek, I suppose. Well, would um, you love to work with, say, Madonna or Amy Winehouse or someone more obscure? Do you have, like, a secret wish list? 
Uh, <laughs> oh, that's a, that's a probing question. No, I don't have a secret wish list. Um, I've been asked before whether I would work for Madonna, and um, I suppose it, that would be a different kind of job. I'd put that, I'd probably I'd approach that in the same way that I approach some of my corporate or branding work. Why is that fun? Because I can't relate to the music. Oh, okay. Now, there was also, um, there was a question before this question um, that I would love to hear your answer to. Isabel, do you, do you mind saying the question again? Sure. I wanted to know if you thought that record covers will go away now that more and more music is being sold on iTunes and the fact that people... Oh, will they go away? Will they disappear? You know, yeah. we've been talking about that for about 20 years, uh, <laughs> the, 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 the death of vinyl um, and the kind of introduction of CDs. And now everything's um, comes without the object. And being a grumpy old man, I will bemoan the passing of vinyl. I will bemoan the passing of that object. But there's still a market for it. And, um, you know, there's a growing market, I know, in this country for vinyl again. People are kind of being reminded of... Um, of a different experience and a different kind of, it's a different ritual in terms of enjoying the music. I think, I think quite, um, quite honestly, I think that there's a sensual and a tactile part of the experience that's been denied us with the move into CDs. So <laughs> I'm only talking like we were, you know, back in the early 90s, but the idea of, um, what was a lovely piece, taking a lovely piece of sexy black vinyl out of the inner sleeve, placing it on your turntable, lining up the um, stylus, and, and mm -hmm. that whole ritual was removed for the sake of convenience. And I think the whole tactile as aspect, the smell of vinyl, the smell of ink on paper, and the scale of that um, package, I think it's it's... It's it's something that's disappeared, but I think there's... Well, I know talking to students today, you know, that, that, that there's a still an enjoyment of it, and maybe it's more of a specialist, um, maybe it's more of a specialist area, but I think it's important. Okay, well, thank you. That's all right, Isabel. Yes, <laughs> thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Isabel. Okay. Well, Vaughn, we're going to take a quick break. I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Melman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Melman, and my guest today is the legendary graphic designer, Vaughn Oliver. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Money, money, up to date business and financial news. Money, money. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866 472 5790. 866 472 5790. Voice America Business. Hi, this is Greg Fraley. I'm the author of Jack's Notebook, which is a business novel about creative problem solving. 
Hi, this is Greg Fraley. I'm the author of Jack's Notebook, which is a business novel about creative problem solving. And I'm here to talk to you about something very creative, which is Fuse. Fuse is the annual event for design and culture, brand identity, and packaging. Fuse is taking place April 13th through 16th at Chelsea Piers in New York, and it's been the top destination for corporate superstars and design legends for over 10 years. Fuse delivers phenomenal experiences, thought-provoking ideas, and brilliant speakers. Be inspired by industry gurus like Malcolm Gladwell, a writer on science, culture, and human behavior, Peter Thum, who's the founder of Ethos Water, Kate Betts, editor at Time, Style, and Design, Erwin Simon, CEO of the Haines Celestial Group, and Stefan Sagemeister, one of today's most important designers. Register today at www.designmattersfuse.com and receive a 20% discount courtesy of Debbie Millman and the Design Matters Show. I hope to see you there. Have you ever had a bad day and wish someone could come along and change it at the flip of a switch? Do you dream of living the life of wealth, great relationships, and the perfect job, but don't know where to start? Then tune into The Winner's Attitude with corporate trainers, motivators, authors, and hosts, Jeff and Val G. No difficult strategies or complicated keys. Jeff and Val present a powerful and effective technology to switch your operating system to create the most amazing life. It has been said that winners have simply formed the habit of doing amazing things. Winners know how to activate that switch and so can you the winner's attitude with jeff and val g broadcast each friday at 8 a.m pacific 11 a.m eastern on the voice america business channel the winner's attitude switch me on the internet's only all business and financial radio network voice america business We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.35 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the legendary graphic designer, Vaughn Oliver. If you'd like to join our conversation, if you have a question for Vaughn, our phone lines are now open. You can call 1-866-472-5790. Welcome back, Vaughn. I wanted to pick up a little bit where we left off uh, in the conversation that we had in the interview that we did back in December of last year. Um, and when we last spoke, you said that you had lost your love for graphic design and would it would make you happiest if you could get back what you love most about graphic design. And I want mm. to know if you felt like you had gotten some of that back. You've had a very prolific year. Um, yeah, well, it, it kind of it goes up and down. And I think at that, that time we were, we were talking about um, one of the burdens of being um, a creative person, if you like. Um, and that is... Um, the idea of self-doubt. Mm-hmm. Yes. The idea of self-doubt, and I think it doesn't kind of it doesn't matter, especially if you work in the way that that I do, is generally on my own. Um, um, or having said that, I'm in partnership, and I haven't mentioned Chris Big yet. Yeah. There's a there's a full power. I've been working with him for 25 years. Um, we used to work in the studio together, um, but he since he moved um, to the Isle of Wight. 
about five years ago. He only comes in the office about once a week, and we conduct everything by email. Um, so I, that's not a totally satisfactory way of working. I think the idea of working in tandem or working in the same space produces um, banter. Is that an English word? Produces the crack, produces conversation. Yeah, no, you banter is a wonderful word. I love that. Out of conversation, mm-hmm. creativity happens. So I kind of, I miss that aspect of it. Um, um, so it's kind of working conditions, I, I, I think, that, um, that aren't as satisfactory as they used to be. I think the music business has changed. Well, we know the music business has changed so much. Um, I think there's less sense of rebellion out of there. Mm-hmm. What I've done to remedy that, anyway, is to get back into um, teaching and education. I've had a house full of students here today just doing a show and tell, and that reminds me of my love for graphic design. Mm-hmm. Um, just having that, those discussions and having the feedback, and, and it kind of reminds, you, reminds me where I'm coming from. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely, absolutely. I'm actually at Village Julie College uh, for the last couple of days. I've been working with a group of absolutely magnificent students in putting together a project. And I've, I'm, I'm not quite finished yet, but I, I can tell you right now I'll come away from this experience transformed by their energy and mm. enthusiasm and their creativity. It's quite extraordinary to be able to be It's a fantastic students. thing. And you, I think there's, I don't know whether, I can't remember who said it, but you, you, you teach to learn. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And Absolutely. I think it's in sharp contrast to the working situation where, I have, where I'm kind of generally working by myself. So it, I'm just finding it, it pays to get out. <laughs> yes. This has, been, this has been invigorating. Well, we have another caller. We have Leanne from New Jersey. Leanne, Leanne thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, how are you? I'm um, fine, Leanne. Thank you for calling. <laughs> I've got a question. I just was wondering what you think about the sort of the current state of the music business and, you know, with the popularity of American Idol and sort of less uh, less interesting music, for lack of a better way of putting it, and sort of the decline in, of the music business and where you think it's going from here. Um, I think it has been in decline. It's become more of a, it's become much more business management oriented. Exactly. In the same way that Blumen education has as well. Um, I can draw parallels with that. There's a, there's a, a safer atmosphere out there now. There's only, um, there's only a few bands that are prepared to challenge it. And I can only relate this to generally kind of English bands like Radiohead or the Arctic Monkeys that are doing things their way and on their own that reminds me of the independent spirit that spawned all these record companies in the 1980s, of which 4AD was part. There was a sense of rebellion then and, and a desire to do things um, that upset the status quo, to kick against the pricks, um, to produce something that just came from the heart, that had no aspirations to commercial success, and that's what the independent labels were like. I wonder whether, in this climate, climate, um, that the that it's a good time for those independents to be reborn. I wish I could name names. I'm sure it's happening at this at, the, at this at this time. But I think the general state of the mainstream music business.
wet and it's diluted versions of uh, what it should be and what it was, even the mainstream, what the mainstream was um, 20 years ago, 10 years ago. How do you think we can change that? Can designers influence this in any way? Is there any way that the public can demand better music? Um, I don't know. That's a, that's, a, that's a good question. You know, one of the thank you for calling. Thank you for calling, Leanne. Thank Appreciate you. it very much. Um, you know, one of the things that I read in Visceral Pleasures was this quote about why you listen to music, and you wrote, well, you said that I listen to music to change or enhance my mood, to take me elsewhere. It tickles things in me and takes me into a different state of mind, a dreamlike state. When I'm at a gig, music affects me totally physically, and I don't think rationally about how I'm going to describe it. I get yeah, you can relate to that, can't you? <laughs> totally. I, 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 I have always felt that music changes my DNA. Something, something becomes ignited inside, and I, I just become a completely different person. But do you, do you feel that with any current music? Or do you have, I mean, I did feel that, and I have um, fundamentally enjoyed every single track on the new Radiohead album, and I loved the way they marketed the Radiohead album. Mm. Um, there's, a, there's a couple of CDs that I feel have done that. In, in yeah, the but year. isn't it also kind of part and parcel of, of a period in your, in your life where you were open to those, to, to those stimuli? Mm-hmm. Can you can you continually be touched in the same place? When I first read Samuel Beckett, that touched a really personal place in me. When I first saw Andrei Tarkovsky's films, mm-hmm. um, when I first saw the Swans live, um, they kind of touched a place that was so fundamental, so primal in me. The it's done now. So what I was going to say was I don't think that um, I'm as open to those to the kind of the radical change of the DNA when I listen to music as I used to be. Mm-hmm. I'm still hungry. I'm still I'm not as hungry. I still have the appetite. I'm not as hungry. But I think in terms of those um, zones that it touches, um, maybe those areas have been a bit burnt out. No. No? <laughs> no. I still am ever, ever hopeful. Um, Vaughn, I have an email question that I just got from Marco from Dallas, who said, um, Vaughn, um, thanks for the great work. A couple of questions for you. <laughs> they're, they're, they're interesting questions, actually. I think um, a lot of people might want to know this. What does uh, 23 Envelope and V23 stand for? Mm. <laughs> yeah, I think I have a different answer for this every time. Um, twenty-three, the number twenty-three came came to came to me on a whim. It was it was always it's as banal as this, Debbie. It, it's instead of saying X times when I was a kid, I would just say twenty-three times. If I didn't know the number, it was twenty-three. Oh, so that was your so fallback position. That was that's that's generally yes, that's what it was. But then. You've, you kind of coincidentally you come to learn about the cult of 23 that it's, it's supposed to be the most recurring number um, in the newspapers for instance you, or you watch films and things will happen you watch Combras things will happen outside of uh, room 23 in the motel or room 23 in the hotel I think it's also a lazy figure a lazy fallback for journalists that say 
there were more than 23 deaths here. There were more than 23 cases of something here. Now I'm going to notice that. There's a nice lyrical sound to it. It's better than 22 or 24. They round things up too nicely. Um, but for me, no, it was just it was just uh, me favourite number. And what about the envelope part of the name? The envelope, well, there's a packet of envelopes next to us when we were trying to think of a name. So that's where envelope came from. And then and that, V23 that was is V Vaughn? Pardon? And the V23 was the V for Vaughn or you Vagina? Your imagination stopped working by 1998. <laughs> well, no, I'd always... Uh, so, so my relationship with Nigel Grayson, that was 23 envelope. Okay, and we yeah. kind of went to high school together and through college together. Fantastic photographer. And then we had uh, differences around the mid-80s. Yes, and when you started I, V23. I, I took her on Chris Big as an assistant, and then we're partners now since, since 98. So that's kind of um, our partnership name, V23. Well, the reason why I, I mentioned um, the word vagina was because uh, in some work of yours that I've been looking at, some recent work. So what did you say? Um, the word vagina. Oh, I wanted you to say it twice. I'm sorry. Uh, I thought you said does V stand for Vaughn? Um, I did, and then I and then I asked. I followed it up with a second question, but it went by very quickly. But in in a book that um, you did for Coco de Mer, a book of inspiration, there's an image of a woman with a half-eaten peach in her vagina, and you use that as a source of inspiration. And I was wondering if you can tell us a bit more about that and how you came up with the idea and how you got a woman to do that and just how the whole thing happened. Uh, <laughs> I think you have to you have to <clears throat> uh, paint a picture of the context. Remember, the, the rest of the book is almost kind of Victorian yes. in its approach, kind of very nice Victorian title page. Um, Coco de Mer as a client um, is a, I suppose, a sex emporium in Covent Garden in London. But the proprietor, Sam Roddick, she's Anita Roddick's daughter. Um, From the body shop? That's right. She okay. has, it's a fantastic shop. And it's everything's done with imagination and class. Um, so they sell kind of range of underwear and sex toys. <clears throat> um, I was invited down to the shop to meet Sam uh, by the photographer, and um, I made the, I made the mistake of um, I'd only been in there two minutes. And I have to say, it's not, not my kind of shop, generally. Mm -hmm. um, this was a new client to me. This was a commercial proposition. Okay. Um, and I, I made the mistake of pointing at something and asking, what was that? Well, that's a masturbation ring, Vaughan. So this metallic um, tool, this object, was... was so, uh, you know, and then what's worth, how does it work? So within, like, five minutes of meeting this new client, she was slipping this masturbation ring onto my fingers and then bending my, me by the elbow and doing the appropriate action. Wow. You don't get many clients like that. No, you don't. So that's where the inspiration for this so, photograph So that's kind, of, that's kind of what they were selling through their book of inspiration. Eh? Oh, I Drugs see. And glass dildos and stuff like that, you know. Um, the, you have quite a range the, of the, clients. The you're doing a lot of the music work. You're doing, you've done this book. I know that you've done uh, quite a beautiful body of work for L'Oreal as well. And uh, you've been working with Cinema, the company Cinema. Townside Cinema. 
So tell us, tell us about some of the current work that you're doing and the type of work that you want to be doing. Well, I'm, I'm pleased to be able to kind of uh, peel back the ears and talk about the older work, Debbie, and us, but I think we do get ty- kind of typecast for that specialist area. Um, right, which is why I really wanted you to talk about some of the work for L'Oreal, which is absolutely stunning and certainly has the Vaughn Oliver genius uh, embedded in it, but it is certainly very it's a more different reserve, from isn't the record it, work. It's kind of, it's just, there's a sense of reserve about it. Mm-hmm. You can see that there's a similar aesthetic at, uh, at work. And I think what was interesting about that was here's this global brand, um, you know, uh, in bed with a kind of maverick small outfit. Um, what worked for us was um, rather than just taking the portfolio and um, say this is what we do, because that usually leads to... Um, scratched heads, we love it, what can we do with it? Um, we took in an idea so to their special projects department. I'm talking about a link between hair and fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, so with L'Oreal, we produced, produced I sent you one of well, three or four special projects that we've done with them that showed a link with um, hair and fashion. We got involved with, um, they were uh, ex-graduates of Central St. Martin's, people like Robert Carey Williams and John Galliano, Alexander McQueen, and we got them to um, contribute outfits and got stylists in to kind of do um, hair designs that reflected the outfits, if you like, that were appropriate, that kind of reflecting the relationship between hair and fashion. Um, So that's an interesting area, I think, for us. I think the most recent work we've been doing is is rebranding an independent cinema in Newcastle. It was a cinema that I enjoyed as a student and they've just given us a total free hand. The cinema's being renovated back to its original 1930s condition, um, which is kind of a lot of mosaic tiling. Initially I was trying, um, but the, the, with, there's new screens being put in and I was trying to make a, a draw relationship initially between the mosaic and the pixel. Mm-hmm. which doesn't come across in the final work. The final work is more of an um, off-in-the-distance thing about kind of light and dark um, and, and, and uh, an independent, low-fidelity approach. So we cut these three-dimensional letters from cardboard and stuck them to a baseboard with blue tack, you know, simple, low-production qualities and snapshot camera um, Images to produce these these brand images for for the cinema, and they, they loved them, and they, they said we weren't we weren't being eccentric enough for them. <laughs> That's a nice so what did you do from it? there? <clears throat> so yeah, so we make kind of forays into the mainstream, and it's, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, really, because I think we do tend to get sidelined, or um, the spotlight really tends to go on the the music business work, and. Um, it's nice that you bring up the fact that we can do some adult work as well. Well, do you have a different approach? I mean, if, you, if you're given an assignment by um, a rock band or a punk band or an avant-garde band, do you have a different way of working than you might for L'Oreal or some of the other big companies that you're working with? Well, you have to. We have to take, um, <clears throat> we have to take a pretty different brief on board. And but aside the from brief, the different the brief from the band is a very kind of is, personal is, brief. 
Pardon? A, the brief from the band is a very personal brief. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas kind of with, with a corporate client, obviously, you're, you're taking into consideration the brand and what has gone before. And do you find one more difficult than another, or do you find them equally challenging? I think equally challenging is a good answer. I'm glad to put those <laughs> words in the mouth. Um, yeah. for, for, for very different reasons, yeah. Um, and I suppose I enjoy the, the music stuff more because of the experimentation involved and because, you know, you're kind of pushing yourself and you've got more opportunity. Mm-hmm. To go somewhere you haven't gone before, whereas kind of when you're working, when you're working with a, with a more of a corporate client, um, you're kind of generally more involved with what you already know and and how you need to apply it. And I think that's one of the things that really struck me when I first left college and I was working at Michael Peters. All of a sudden, it wasn't about pushing yourself creatively; it was about applying what you knew. Well, that's how I looked at it anyway. And I, I think that designers can fundamentally look at their, they should be able to look at their work and see the lineage of what they know and how that intersects with what they're designing. But I think that a lot of young designers don't quite see the need for that level of depth. And, and it's it's, I think, wonderful to hear designers talk about the, the intellect that is embedded in the work that they're doing and Who's certainly been, in the work that you've to? done. Well, Pardon? I've been talking about that, have I? Pardon? I've been talking about that, have I? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> My last question for you, Vaughn, is, is this. You, you've been dubbed an, an inspirational graphic alchemist, and I, I love that term in relation to you, and it seems that it seems to follow what I sense in the air these days, a sort of yearning for the boldly new, something that transcends and advances and transmutes. And your work is obviously influenced by a broad range of styles, the expressionistic, the impressionistic, the abstract, the stirring, the violent. You take the borrowed and the old and you make it your very own and you make it new. It's very eclectic, isn't it, I suppose? Very eclectic yeah. and very original. And So the question I have is, where do you see yourself going? Where do you see your work moving to? What do you think will be happening next in your life? Debbie, that's the worst question you could ask anybody that? that deals with life on a day-to-day business, on a day-to-day basis, sorry. <laughs> I don't know where it's going. Where do you want I, it to I, go? I really don't. I just kind of take each day as it comes. And uh, I suppose that's why, um, in one sense, we've never been a great success business-wise because I don't know how to put a plan together. Uh, I kind of, I'm passionate and focused about whatever's on the desk that day. And it's hard for me to lift my head. I've never learned that lesson. And that's the lesson I try to tell students um, to, to look beyond the moment. But don't miss the moment. So it's a, it's a hard question. Where do you think your work's going? Do you, do you have kind of like a, a, a five-year plan? You well, know? it's really interesting. I, when I, I took a class with Milton Glaser two and a half years ago, and he asked us to put together a plan, and I was a bit skeptical about it. And it was a wonderful exercise in, in the grand scheme of things because I think I look back on it now and I could see the, the lines from from that moment till now and, and the progression that I've had, that I could look back and say, just 
vocalizing, just taking a stand for what I wanted to have happen in the future goes a long way in helping you visualize that happening. And it sounds kind of corny and I think kind of cosmic. And I think that's why I was so skeptical with it initially. But I think for those of us in that class, we all have felt that since that statement, since that sort of investment with that statement, we, we have been able to manifest some of that. But all, in the grand scheme of things, all I really want is to be happy. Yeah. <laughs> Five years uh, from no, now, that's no, all I want. No, no. That's all I want tomorrow, too, I think. Um, Bon, I I, I can't even begin to tell you how happy this conversation has made me and your being on the show, and you're just such an extraordinary influence to so many designers and to me, and I just want to thank you for your time and for your wonderful contribution to the world that you give us with your work. Debbie, it's uh, very kind of you to ask me. Uh, Thank you. You've got a great book out there, How to Think Like a Great Graphic Designer. Well, thank you. And um, it's kind of... uh, it's very um, inspiring to know that there's more than you just listening. Thank you. Right. Well, thank you, Vaughn. I also want to thank our sponsor, Adobe. I also want to thank Brian, Ruben, and Jeff at Voice America, Lisa Grant and Jen Simon at Sterling, and Edwin Rivera for all of his help. Joining me next week on Design Matters is Jonah Lehrer, author of the marvelous book, Proust Was a Neuroscientist. Thank you for listening, and please remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Money, money, up-to-date business and financial news. Money, money. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business. Hi, this is Greg Fraley. I'm the author of Jack's Notebook, which is a business novel about creative problem solving. And I'm here to talk to you about something very creative, which is Fuse. Fuse is the annual event for design, culture, brand identity, and packaging. Fuse is taking place April 13th through 16th at Chelsea Piers in New York, and it's been the top destination for corporate superstars and design legends for over 10 years. Fuse delivers phenomenal experiences, thought-provoking ideas, and brilliant speakers. Be inspired by industry gurus like Malcolm Gladwell, a writer on science, culture, and human behavior, Peter Thum, who's the founder of Ethos Water, Kate Betts, editor at Time, Style, and Design, Erwin Simon, CEO of the Haines Celestial Group, and Stefan Sagemeister, one of today's most important designers. Register today at www.designmattersfuse.com and receive a 20% discount courtesy of Debbie Millman and the Design Matters Show. I hope to see you there.